Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who um, appreciated a recent email I got from Open Food Network. Many of us are feeling uh, very worn down. Fires, flood, drought, uh, the IPCC report on climate change, so many local and international crises, not to mention COVID. So what's, what to do? Um, here's an exercise from Lynn Davis of the Open Food Networks UK. Number one, close your eyes. Imagine the most vibrant, healthy, living world you possibly can. Now open your eyes. Do one thing to create the world you just imagined repeat every day. So when it comes to our food system, how do we move from a food production being a source of economic, social, and ecological destruction? How do we move towards a a food system which is a source of clean water, healthy soils, just economy, and a toxic-free environment? In short, how do we support healthy agriculture? And on today's show, we're going to be talking with three researchers, and they've participated in a two-year-long study. Um, and their website, you can get more information about the study at Midwest Healthy or MidwestHealthyAg.org. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Ann Wolf, Carolyn Betts, and Dr. Robin Rob Walls. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's go around. Yeah, let's just go around one at a time and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this. So let's start with you, Dr. Uh, Rob Wallace. Uh, yes, I am a evolutionary epidemiologist by training. Um, I study things like uh, avian influenza and. Uh, Zika and uh, Ebola, and uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, uh, we weren't going to stop the emergence of these pathogens unless we actually uh, came to their, you know, core origins. And uh, many of these new pathogens are emerging out of um, the kind of industrial agriculture that's been propagating around the world. And so I uh, got into this end of the pool, as it were, and uh, or uh, this end of the, of the land, as it were to uh, help try to move us toward a more uh, regenerative agriculture that would uh, uh, stop these pathogens from emerging. I'm part of a group called the Agroecology and World Economics Research Corps. Uh, We're a group of independent scientists and researchers and and farmers and food activists who are interested in kind of uh, filling in the kind of research gap that's developed. A lot of the land-grant universities are are kind of they do um, many of them do amazing work, but a lot of them are also involved in doing uh, primarily agribusiness R and D, and so our group is trying to fill in for that and and working with uh, organizations to try to help uh, uh, you know com- their research needs in terms of uh, producing a new agriculture. Yeah, that's producing a new agriculture. And then Ann Wolf, you're um, you're also executive director of Iowa Heartland um, and also with Midwest Healthy Egg. So tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, well, thank you, Laura. Yes, I serve as Executive Director of Iowa Heartland Resource Conservation and Development. We're one of six RC&Ds in the state of Iowa and part of 150 uh, RC&Ds nationwide. Uh, I serve also as the co-program director, uh, along with Dr. Rob Wallace with Midwest Healthy Ag. And uh, I live and work here in Des Moines, Iowa, but I own a 300-acre farm uh, in Iowa, Jackson County, right along the Mississippi River. And I've been in ag my entire life. Um, And I've been doing conservation work with the NRCS, which is part of USDA, for 30 years in riparian buffers. I've got five active NRCS programs right now. 
uh, on my farm. I'm involved with Iowa Prairie Network and Iowa Women in Ag, and I, I serve on numerous boards and organizations in agriculture. Um, and um, and recently, I just got a master's degree from the University of Northern Iowa, and I'm interested in getting a little more involved with their prairie network up there uh, at the university um, and just getting more involved, uh, even more so than I have been for a number of years with conservation and environmental sustainability and agricultural best practices. Oh, what a great background. And then Carolyn Betts. I'm going to say your name. Hi, Laura. Um, thanks for having us today. Um, I'm Carolyn Betts, and I live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I have a background in geology and environmental studies. Um, I started my career at the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and I worked there for about 24 years as a water quality specialist. And my area of specialty was non-point source pollution. So that's soil and phosphorus that run off into water bodies and how we can prevent that from happening to improve um, water quality. And then I, um, I left the DNR and went to the University of Wisconsin, one of those land grant universities that Rob was talking about. And I got into more climate change issues. And in my um, most recent job there, from which I have retired, I was working on a uh, project on climate change related to mitigating greenhouse gases from dairy production systems. But I found that it was pretty much using conventional agriculture um, in it as its framework. And um, this presented, this project presented an opportunity for me to get more into regenerative agriculture, which I personally think is one of the best ways to move forward to help build healthy soil. And as Rob talked about, help build healthy communities as well. Awesome. Okay, so um, tell us about the two-year study. Rob, you want to yeah, go well, first? Um, sure. I mean, uh, one of the things, um, uh, you know, the I talked about how agroecology economics research course thing community groups with their research names. Well, a group called Regeneration Midwest, which is a project of Regen Regeneration International. Uh, that's a it's a, a network of uh, Midwest farmers and. Uh, uh, community activists and, and consumer advocates and scientists, uh, uh, they came to us and said, we want to apply for this grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and we want to be able to, uh, you know, look out there and see the impacts of the uh, various uh, agricultural uh, uh, modes of production to see their impact on uh, on climate mitigation, uh, how to deal with the, uh, the effects of climate change, and uh, the impacts on community health. And, you know, uh, so we applied for the grant. We were uh, very lucky to be able to get it because, you know, a lot of people apply for this, but it's a two-year grant. And um, we uh, named the, the project Midwest Healthy Ag, and uh, we are centered in, in uh, investigating uh, the impacts of the co different types of agriculture on climate and uh, community health in six states to start with. So uh, we're starting uh, in Illinois, um, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. Uh, our uh, plan is to eventually go to the other six uh, uh, Midwest states. And the project is uh, it's, it's twofold in the sense of we're looking at the, these impacts on two levels. We've got a kind of a census analysis using USDA data 
for uh, looking at uh, 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 first to, to determine what is the prevalent types of agriculture done in uh, not just in the counties of the six states, but all uh, 1,055 counties across the Midwest. So we develop an index to give us an indication of where along that continuum between regenerative and more conventional production the counties are. Um, and also, uh, you know, developing uh, uh, databases for a variety of kind of uh, uh, impact uh, uh, variables, things like uh, uh, the uh, impact on, on, uh, on uh, pollution in waterways, impact on people's uh, health. Uh, so that's at the kind of uh, level of the county. And, but we're also, uh, uh, as we'll get into in more detail, we're also um, uh, interviewing uh, farmers in uh, two counties per state of the six states. So that's 12 counties in all. So these are very long involved uh, uh, conversations um, about the relationship uh, that the farmers have with their farm and the greater community. Um, and we're also convening what are called focus groups where we collect together uh, four or more people to have a kind of winding conversation about uh, a variety of topics. Uh, um, so this is, extends out into the greater community. So our, our notion of, of rural life isn't just about productivity, isn't just about what farmers are doing on their farm. Rural life extends off farm into the greater uh, uh, county, into, into the local towns. And so we want to capture a, a fuller sense of the relationship between the kind of agric agricultural production people are, are doing or counties are, are typically engaged in and the impact on, on mitigating climate uh, uh, change and uh, also improving community health. So that's the project in a nutshell. Yeah. And so any early results, anything you can share with us? I mean, these are, you know, issues that are so passionate to us, climate change and agriculture and healthy communities. Are there, are there, uh, um, did you pick up some stories that illustrate some solutions, some connectivities? Maybe Anne wants to tackle that? I can go ahead. I was going to say, let's let Carolyn fill, fill you in on that um, process. Well, we have many, many findings. Um, Laura, we've interviewed about 85 to 90 farmers in each of those, in, in all six of those states that Rob just mentioned. And we've come up with many, many themes of um, findings. Um, I think that some of the questions that we've asked have been super interesting because they're related to the pandemic. We asked people how the pandemic has affected their community. And um, uh, some of the findings show that um, the, the pandemic is presenting itself at the community level in, um, in its divisiveness and that a lot of people are showing what side of the political um, net frame they sit on it, by whether or not they wear a mask. Um, and so a lot of communities are feeling really divided right now and people are um, not happy with their neighbors based on which side of the fence they sit on related to that. But a lot of farmers, believe it or not, have not been as financially impacted by the pandemic as um, maybe we had thought. And that's because the federal government uh, provides subsidies. Unfortunately, a lot of the farmers that we talked to were not able to get some of those subsidies because they are small farmers who are growing vegetables or fruits and they may sell their um, pro products at a farmer's market or through a CSA or through direct market shares, but they're not likely to get federal subsidies. It's the large grain farmers and um, animal farmers, say those who own a feedlot or whatever, who are getting um, bigger subsidies. Um, 
Okay, well, we're going to uh, need to take a break here. Yeah. and um, But when we come back, we're going to talk more about this landmark two-year study interviewing 85 to 90 farmers. How do we create healthy agriculture that works for all? Um, we'll take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. This here is something new. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, um, uh, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking about a new uh, landmark study, talking uh, two years, talking to 80, 85, 90 farmers. Um, and uh, we are talking with uh, three people with Midwest Healthy Egg. You can get more information by going to MidwestHealthyEgg.org. Um, Ann Wolf, Carolyn Betts, and Dr. Rob Wallace. And before we went on break, we were talking about how COVID affected things. So can you share with us some more information about um, what you gained from these conversations, um, Anne? Well, again, I think I almost want to defer to Carolyn because if we're talking about the direct interviews, um, sure, let's the talk one to Carolyn as, then. As the researcher, yeah, leading into that. Okay, um, some of the another uh, another example of the financial impact of COVID that we've noticed um, or that farmers have told us about over the past nine months is that um, a lot of meat packing plants were closed, as you know, um, especially during the beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of farmers weren't able to have their animals processed as usual because a lot of the um, people who worked in the meat packing plants got COVID themselves. And that created a big havoc in the food supply chain. And it, and it highlighted some of the things that we think could be done better with um in terms of how animals are processed. So for example, I talked to a farmer yesterday in Kansas and he was telling me that in his county, um, they were actually able to open up, reopen two um, meatpacking plants that had closed in past years because they were able to get a grant. And these two uh, meatpacking plants um, were able to start processing beef again. Wow. And so instead of him shipping his meat to a national beef production plant, he was able to have it done locally. And a third plant opened brand new. So um, he said that they each of these meat plants employs between 10 to 15 people, and they may um, process about 10 animals a day, which is a lot smaller, of course, than some of these national meat plants. So, but it's a um, lot more anti-fragile. And, you know, the the tra- that we had so much tragedies, um, but that they were killing uh, how many pigs Hannah B. just slaughtered and then buried because they didn't have the the resources. I mean, what what we heard early in the pandemic was just tragic. And so to, re- to, re- to recreate those local communities with the small butchers is, is healthier. Mm-hmm. I think that they're very far and few between. And that's why I felt really encouraged yesterday to talk to this guy in Kansas, because that was the first time I've talked, I've interviewed people in all five states so far. So of, you know, 85 different people, he's the first person that's told me that they were able to get some of the more local processing done. And I think that it just goes to show how the fallacy of our food production system, that there are very few processors across the country. And when something like COVID comes along, it's going to create havoc in how we get our food. And most people 
many people in the United States last year and this year too are really interested in getting their food locally. So some of the vegetable farmers also said that they were um, they've done the best business that they had ever done last year because people are interested in knowing where their food comes from, and they were interested in buying local. And so some farmers, such as um, those in Minnesota in St. Louis County, were able to um, cooperate and come up with a way of sharing how they market their products. So um, people in the area were able to go online and they could buy from many different farmers and just do a one pickup. So instead of going to a farmer's market, the farmers came together online and said, hey, I offer honey. Another one's, hey, I offer lamb. Another one is like, I do fresh vegetables. Another one is flowers. And so somebody could go online and they could order what they wanted and go to one pickup spot. It was only open for an hour but they could go to the one pickup shop stop and get everything that they needed from uh, a, from local producers. So um, that's something that we think um, can be replicated. And I think that a lot of people are going to continue to sell their products that way. Um, I would say that most people were not really concerned about COVID in, in these rural communities because most farmers think of themselves as being very isolated. Um, they don't interact a lot. And a lot of people said that they just kind of went about doing business the way that they do, that they normally did. But the people who suffered, um, of course, in the rural communities were children because the schools were closed and they were not allowed to, um, you know, learn in the classroom and they had to go online. And that brought up another issue that we discussed covered, which um, I'm sure you've heard a lot about before, which is that there's not enough rural broadband to allow people to connect via the internet. And so a lot of children weren't able to be, you know, get their education as normal. Some of the parents may have had to drive to a school because and sit in the parking lot so their child could have connectivity because um, the internet wasn't able to reach in a far out area, even though a lot of people were giving hot, given hotspots um, like through their phone, the school would deliver that to their home, but that didn't even work for them. So a lot of people really suffered for um, from the pandemic um, in our rural areas. And then another issue that um, we learned was the, um, the the idea of health insurance. A lot of um, farmers do not have health insurance. It's particularly the vegetable farmers who talked about this, but even big farmers talked about how much it costs for them to get health insurance. And that um, some people may choose not to take health insurance because it's too expensive for them, three, four hundred, five hundred dollars a month, or even way more than that. Um, the irony, though, is a lot of the farmers that we talked to said that cancer is ubiquitous in their community and that um, they need health insurance just because they think that someday they will get cancer. And they'll think about people up and down their road that said, this guy has cancer, this guy had cancer, this guy died from cancer, and so on. So there's a lot of issues that we learned um, during the course of the interviews. And I think that COVID brought out a lot of issues that um, maybe we wouldn't, people wouldn't have talked about before. Yeah, COVID's interesting because it's a, uh, I mean, it's obviously it's interesting and terrible. I mean, uh, uh, and, um, you know, contrary to, you know, notions that everything's uh, was fine and dandy, you know, rural counties have been, some rural counties more than others have been uh, hit quite badly by uh, outbreaks. And, uh, but it, it, uh, it did two things. One, it kind of um, uh, underscored many of the uh, things that have been going on all along. And it also uh, offered an opportunity to pivot uh, in directions that uh, one hopes uh, would continue in the future. And, uh, you know, Carolyn um, 
pointed out both of those. So, you know, the uh, uh, all along, a lot of the more regenerative farmers, um, despite uh, offering great examples at the farm level, uh, have been uh, still bottled up by the inability to develop these supply lines, both from inputs in and, and, uh, and markets out. And so uh, that's been quite difficult. And, and even they who, who you know, are, you're, you know, you're growing out hog uh, on your farm, you're not part of industrial system. You still were beholden toward getting your hog processed at the, the large industrial plants. Um, all the kind of regional abattoirs were basically destroyed uh, largely after World War II over concerns of, uh, you know, health practices and in, in the, um, and you know, uh, uh, aspects of, you know, whether or not the plants were up to code in terms of um, uh, hygienics and, uh, but, uh, you know, of course, that helped destroy the local uh, economic um, networks in a way that um, also, you know, cut off uh, and led to the kind of waves of consolidation that fed into the kind of more industrial sized farms that would feed those plants. Um, and what COVID did, as uh, Carolyn explained, is that, uh, you know, the, those large plants ground to a halt outbreaks of their own going on there and as you brought up laura many of the excess uh hog and other livestock that were grown you know on, on a just-in-time schedule grown to a certain size and if they are too large they can't get into the plants and as you described uh you know they were uh destroyed um in mass and uh so, so robert Rob, dr that, rob wallace we're going yeah. to take another break um you're listening to food freedom radio on am 950 the progressive voice of minnesota and we're talking about um midwesthealthyegg.org Food Freedom Radio, and how do we not let down the planet, the water, the soil, and each other? How do we create a healthy agricultural system? And to, on today's show, we're talking with three researchers um, with Midwest Healthy Egg. And when we went on break, we were talking about COVID and how it affected um, the rural community in terms of meat processing. And Ann Wolf, um, you are the uh, executive director of Island Iowa Heartland and also with Mid- Midwest Healthy Egg. Um, tell us a little bit about your perspective. Well, again, I'm going to sort of represent the state of Iowa, and I do want to support what Carolyn discovered in the interviews that she conducted uh, with the states that we've studied so far. Um, Iowa, uh, regarding the large meat processing of facilities in our state, uh, you know, did have an issue with the pandemic and and not being able to, you know, go through the literally the chain of command and getting their cow or or calf or hog operation, you know, to the slaughterhouses houses on time because they did uh, close. But what that did allow was the opportunity for small meat lockers to once again resume in a more profitable way and actually at new meat lockers were uh, formed. In fact, I just put an order in for a brand new meat locker that just opened up about four months ago and put my order in. Um, and so that was, that was sort of a positive that came out of, you know, out of the uh, COVID situation. Uh, granted there weren't very many, but that was one of the things that allowed uh, new businesses to form with the more small and regional meat locker operations. And the state of Iowa is supporting that initiative. Um, Again, uh, I just again, I just kind of want uh, to to support what's already been talked about. Um, 
uh, farmers did a, a wonderful online. You know, we all uh, communicated and gathered together and, and learned a lot of new new ways of doing things, you know, through the COVID because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, in my farm neighborhood over in Jackson County, you know, I would have discussions with my uh, farmer neighbors there. Most of them work off the farm in a full-time job uh, in, in Clinton or Dubuque or across the river into Illinois. And so they had that safety net of, you know, having an off-the-farm job to support expenses with insurance. Uh, but that is that is really the primary reason why a lot of them do have a full-time job off the farm unless they farm five or 6,000 acres and have a large farming uh, operation. Most have to work off the farm uh, in some capacity, whether it's them or, you know, their, their significant other to bring that uh, payment in for health insurance. Um, and yes, you know, there, there, there definitely is, you know, I'm very much aware of the cancer prevalence in, in agriculture as I've, you know, been involved with a number of organizations. And it is one of those unfortunate things that does happen, um, you know, on the farm um, in certain counties in Iowa, it's a little more prevalent than others. Um, but again, with the COVID pandemic, we're just kind of wrapping up there. I mean, yes, there, there were, there were uh, uh, difficulties with it, of course, and yet it, it did, um, give opportunity for people to kind of reassess, reevaluate, and uh, be creative and find new initiatives and ways of doing um, farm ag, uh, their farm ag business operations. So I guess they always say there is, can be a silver lining uh, behind a dark cloud. Yeah, that, that's the thing I was getting at before the break was that, you know, historically, you know, the push toward the large uh, processing plants you know, have been in place for so long and for decades that the notion of reopening these regional abattoirs and meat lockers and such were, was, uh, you know, thought of as a, a bygone time, impossible. And then, and yet within a matter of, you know, within six months to a year, all of a sudden the impossible is, is brought about to happen. And, um, and it, you know, uh, Carolyn described examples in Kansas and described in Iowa, um, you know, the regenerative, uh, 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 Agriculture Alliance um, helped uh, set up a, a new poultry processing plant along the Minnesota-Iowa border. That uh, um, that uh, so all these things. I mean, there's relatively few examples, but the the power of an example is important because it basically uh, stipulates that what was defined as impossible is actually. Uh, completely reasonable and completely uh, possible, and uh, we begin to see a slow push in a direction of of uh, re regionalizing um, agricultural economies in a way that uh, you know local counties can now have their uh, their their meat processed uh, uh, by neighbors. Yeah, and I mean the, the the goal of the bigger project, as I understand it, is to make these connections between agriculture, environment, and community health and well-being. Those are all intersected. Um, they're not separate. Mm -hmm. It's just not about GNP. It's just not about money. It's about health and environment and how we connect those dots. Am, am I understanding that correctly? That that was one of the aspirations is how do we unveil that right. that knowing? You know, it's a knowing, right? Uh, definitely. And, and you know, uh, I'll hand it over to Carolyn in a second when she gives some examples. But our notion is that, you know, regenerative agriculture isn't just about healthy soil. And, and that's, of course, very important. 
But uh, any farmer, individual farmer who goes on that path, say from a more conventional production, is faced by all these kind of stops along the way that extend beyond their farm. And so our notion of, of true regenerative ag has to extend into the ability of uh, you know local communities to be able to control decision making about what happens to the landscape, rather than you know, turning whole counties into kind of uh, agribusiness sacrifice zones in which all the money is just shunted out and all the decision making is done at headquarters out of state and and health is is fundamentally related to that it you know it, it's not just uh, reducing exposures to pesticides and such uh, you know that might account for the cancer alleys and such and cancer valleys but in addition um uh you know to be able to to, to return uh, what's called the locus of control the the the, the ability to make decision-making as a long history in the public health literature showing that the ability for a community to make their own decisions about what happens is a fundamental uh, uh, building block for a wider community health. Anna or Carolyn, do you want to pop in with that as well? Um, Laura, the question, the questionnaire that we go, that we use when we interview farmers is very intensive and we have many sections. So we ask, the first section is all about the farm management practices and how their operation runs. But then, then we ask a lot of questions about people's own individual, personal, physical and mental health and well-being. And so what we're trying to do is to make the connections between how somebody farms and their own personal health. Um, and then on a larger scale, we also are interested in why people are doing what they're doing. So the people who are conventional farmers have reasons of why they do what they do. So growing mostly corn and soybeans. And, you know, I would say, generally speaking, the, <clears throat> their objective is the bottom line of increasing yield and profitability. Um, conventional farmer, re regenerative farmers, on the other hand, are more focused on building healthy soil. And some examples that people talk about are things like they see after a heavy rain, which we're experiencing more and more with climate change, that they may look downstream and they will see sediment sitting in the bottom of the stream or in a lake. Um, yesterday, um, um, a farmer from Kansas told me that he had between 12 and 15 feet of sediment that had run off not from his farm, but from his neighbors into a river, a nearby river. And he was so disgusted by that over time that he joined one of these um, local watershed groups. And the idea behind that is to get farmers to understand that, you know, you can't grow crops on on soil that that on ground that has no topsoil. And in some parts of the Midwest, of course, the erosion is coming through wind. But in other parts, it's coming from these major storms. And we're noticing um, these extreme uh, weather events happening more frequently. So people are getting like a four-inch rain in two hours or something like that. That was unheard of in the past. And these events are occur occurring more frequently. So um, everybody has their reasons for doing what they want to do. But some of them are driven by um, these health issues, like saying, uh, you know, my father died of cancer, and I realized that uh, we were on this cycle of just um, putting uh, fertilizer, artificial synthetic fertilizer and pesticides on the ground, and we were buying from the seed companies, and we were on this treadmill, and then my father got cancer, and guess what? Then we were buying chemotherapy drugs from the same companies, 
And I decided, this man said, I decided at that point that I was going to get off of this uh, treadmill of conventional farming and I was going to get into organic and I was going to get into regenerative practices. And he's a 1,000 acre um, farmer. And not only did he change the, the way he farms, he also changed the crops that he grows. So now he's growing, this is in Wisconsin, now he's growing like navy beans and um, pinto beans and all kinds of beans rather than um, doing the conventional crops of corn and, and soybeans for animals. Wonderful story. That was very support. inspirational. And 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 um and so uh, how do we support farmers like that? How do how do we all step up and take responsibility for a healthy egg system? Well, I I think I'll kind of uh, start off by addressing that question. Um I think what I've noticed is there's a lot of farmers belonging to organizations and networking and talking and being much more aware of the alternatives that they have available to them to do their farming practice better, differently. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely seen over the years, let's just go, let's just say the last 20, 25 years, I've definitely seen um, an increase in organizations that, you know, farmers can get involved with depending on what their farming operation is like. And that's good. That's how information is shared. Obviously, the internet has allowed for uh, more communication, more or type more types of information out there that farmers can select to implement on their farm. You know, every farm is different. Every farm has a different mode of operation. Uh, farm farming is also dictated by the geography and the topography of the land that you own. Um, you know, my farm is located in the Driftless region of Iowa. Uh, uh, I'm in the karst topography of the state. So what I can do with this land is much different in many capacities as what farmers can do in the north central part of Iowa, which is much more flat. So, you know, that's a big, uh, a big um, dictator as to, you know, how we farm and, and, and the way we farm. And I will say in 2015, regarding extreme rain events, I just happened to be at my farm one weekend in August. <laughs> and I guess it would be six years by now. And I had 11.5 inches of rain fall on my farm and that part of the state um, in a, a five and a half hour uh, period. And I, you know, fortunately I was there. I could not believe what I was seeing the amount of rain that poured down. And I, I took probably about 50 pictures of what was occurring on my farm ground and how my wetland filled up. So these uh, extreme weather events um, are happening and they're extremely uh, soil eroding. Right. Um, and, and then and right now the, the drought is, is really, um, we're in serious drought, which is I'm sure um, putting even more stress on our rural communities. Yes, that depends on the part of the state where, again, where my farm is located, we are not in a drought, but certainly parts of Iowa are. But one of the things that um, people who practice regeneratively, which means that they're really focusing on soil health have told us, are, are that um, their soil becomes much more resilient to these extreme weather events, whether it's drought or whether it's extreme flooding. The soil is much more capable of holding water, for example, if it's, if it's full of organic matter. And um, people have told me that 
compared to their neighbor. One guy said that he was able to um, put in soil moisture probes and he was able to show that his soil still had moisture at three and a half inches compared to his neighbor who was only able to have um, soil moisture like, you know, at the first inch. And so a lot of times when people don't have healthy soil, when you have um, something like a rain event, the water just washes off. The soil doesn't absorb it. And the same thing during a drought. The soil, if it's healthy, has the ability to hold water. And that, of course, allows crops to grow. So it's really all about the soil. And um, that's that should be enough to convince other farmers to change their habits. But so Carolyn, we're gonna need a we're gonna need to take a, yeah. a break again. We're talking with MidwestHealthyEgg.org. Um, you can get more information about a two-year study where they talk to 85 to 90 uh, farmers. Um, how do we help support a healthy egg system? You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. <music> Welcome back to Food Friend Radio. I'm Laura Headland, student in permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who really appreciated this email I got from Open Food Network. And, uh, you know, so many of us are feeling worn down. Fires, floods, droughts, uh, IPC report on climate change, so many uh, international crises and COVID. So what to do? You know, and here is their um, suggestion. One, close your eyes. Two, imagine the most vibrant, healthy living world you possibly can. Now open your eyes. Do one thing to create the world you just imagined and repeat. And so now uh, to wrap it up, um, we're talking with Midwest Healthy Egg. I want to just kind of do a round circle and tell me your vision of the most vibrant, healthy living world when it comes to our egg system. Uh, We can start with you, Dr. Rob Wallace. Okay, yeah. Um, You know, that is not specifically something we're looking at the study. I mean, what comes to to my mind when I think about that is that – and certainly in the context of, uh, you know, COVID-19, if we want to keep uh, the avian influenzas and swine influenzas from emerging, I, you know, I close my eyes and I picture a landscape that is uh, um, marked by a lot of what's called agrobiodiversity, meaning all sorts of different types of livestock and poultry, all sorts of different uh, breeds um, that introduces the kind of genetic variability that keeps uh, any one pathogen that emerges from being able to explode across the landscape and go from state to state and, and, and ravage our uh, uh, livestock industry. So uh, I picture that. I picture that livestock and poultry would uh, be able to breed on site. And presently, on the industrial scale, they're not. Most of the uh, breeding is done offshore at the grandparent level for um, you know, for morphometric characteristics, fast growth and all that. But if we allowed our livestock and poultry to breed on the side, as um, much as done on the regenerative model and, and agroecological model, uh, then any pathogen that comes in, those animals that survive would be able to be the progenitors of the next generation and have the immunity to the, any pathogen that's still circulating. So that that's uh, that's what pops in my mind when I when I think of uh, what a, a, a Midwest healthy ag would look like. Great. How about you, Carolyn Betts? I think that Rob did a great job of describing what a ideal <clears throat> landscape would look like. I think um, the most important thing is that uh, we would have diverse crops on the ground. I just went on a trip uh, cross country. It is unbelievable how much corn and soybeans there is in this country. And what we really need to do is diversify that. We don't need so much of the same two crops 
um, throw in a little wheat there too. But I would love to see farmers grow a way more diverse type of crops on their ground, including um, legumes and cover crops, um, using types of crops that can nourish the land and so that people can get away from using synthetic fertilizers. One of the most important things that Rob just mentioned is that we need to have pastured animals on the landscape. A lot of um, people who are supportive of uh, better food systems may think that it's better to become a vegetarian altogether, but that's not necessarily true because animals provide the manure that can fertilize the land. And um, so I think that there's definitely ways that we can um, bring animals into the landscape to really make our crops um, more healthy and productive and, um, and that kind of thing. I mean, ideally, it would be great for people to grow organically, but um, perhaps that's not, it, it takes a different kind of farmer to do that. But um, I think the bottom line is diversity, animals, and um, trying to disturb the land as little as possible as far as tilling goes, and to make sure that there's something planted all the time. So the use of cover crops is really important as well. So Ann Wolf, um, with the Iowa Heartland, um, how would you envision the most vibrant, healthy living egg system? You know, both Carolyn and Rob really summed it up very nicely. The one word I always use whenever I have to give a, a public presentation is balance. Um, you know, environmental balance, uh, natural to to row cropping, uh, just just balance what you're doing. And that includes the diversity of crop and animals and uh uh, but being fair to nature and the conservation efforts that so many organizations that have been around since the turn of the century, you know, have been promoting for, for decades. Um, and I think it's very important to realize that the natural environment uh, also is part of the biodiversity, uh, agro-biodiversity and the agroecological diversity of any farm uh, or cropping, uh, you know, scenario. So, um, I got to put a word in there for sustainability on the wildlife and the natural habitat, because that's equally important. And unfortunately, down the last minute. So just quickly uh, a wrap up on the study or any thoughts. That might be hard to do in such a few seconds, but uh, I'll start with you, Rob. Uh, I would, sure, I'll just quickly say that what's uh, remarkable about this study, it's uh, unlike many studies, it's a farmer-initiated project. Uh, the farmers uh, of, over in Regeneration Midwest wanted to uh, see the impacts of the various uh, modes of production on, on climate and uh, on community health. And uh, all our decision-making is uh, uh, together, scientists and farmers alike, working together, uh, using our uh, uh, different types of knowledges to produce the best study possible. Anne, you want to pop in? You know, again, I really can't add anything more than what's already been said in, in a very brief nutshell. Um, pastoral landscapes, I tell you what, I love going to my farm. I've got 110 acres in CRP Prairie right now, and there's nothing more beautiful than and looking up, standing up there on the top of this wide expanse of uh, native tall prairie and the nourishment. I know it's giving back to the soil and being so close to the Mississippi River. I'm in migratory patterns for a lot of species, both monarch, butterfly, uh, and all the wildlife and, and bird life that, that exists along that great Mississippi River. So that's my pastoral scene is just getting back to my farm. And that looks like Midwest Healthy Egg. <laughs> and so to learn more about this group, you can go to uh, MidwestHealthyEgg.org. Um, they interviewed farmers for two years, and it's all about how do we connect the dots between agriculture, economy, and um, environment, and community health and well-being. Um, imagine the world we want to live in and take – 
little steps to create it or take big steps too. Uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.